Fireflies Unite with Kia, your weekly podcast from the perspective of individuals thriving with a mental illness. We are normalizing the conversation about mental health within communities of color to foster mental wellness and empowerment. Welcome to another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast with me, Kia, where our mission is to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies, by simply sharing the stories of people of color who live and thrive with a mental illness, and of course, to normalize the mental health conversation. I am so excited to be back with you all, just because there's so much stuff going on. So this past weekend, I spoke at the Hillfest Unconference, and it was a great conference that really just talked about healing. So many times we go to different conferences, and they're big on how to build a brand, how to build a six-figure business, how to get more followers, but no one really wants to talk about going beneath the surface and not talking about things that are so surface level. And so it was great. I had the opportunity to share my story and really encourage people to seek mental health treatment. And then I was off to uh, go on set as I'm working on a documentary. Well, I'm a part of a documentary that's being produced by a clinician based out of New York. And I'm excited. I can't wait to share everything about that when, uh, when it gets closer to it. But we're in the very beginning stages. And then I also participated as a speaker for the Mike Playing Tricks on Me uh, event in Baltimore. Just really, again, share my story and encourage people to that, you know, encourage people to talk about mental health and things that's going on to really encourage them to work toward healing. And y'all know May 14th is the big day. So next Tuesday, my book will be available for the world. And available on Amazon and Kindle. And then later this year, the book will be available at the end of the summer. The plan is for the book to be available for those of us who like, I didn't forget about you. And so just know I'm working on that. And the book will be available for all of my peeps who like to listen to books opposed to reading them. So stay tuned for that. On May 8th and May 22nd. I'll be doing a suicide prevention workshop with the We Fight Foundation. And the We Fight Foundation, they're based here in Maryland. And they do they do a lot of mental health advocacy and education. And then also, they also have a magazine that is super dope. It's called Riley Up. And their magazine is a mental health magazine. And they chose me to be on the spring uh, issue, the cover of the spring issue and Y'all, the, the cover is just super dope, and I'm so excited to be just working with them and all the great things that they have going on. And so I'll be sure to leave that information in the show notes if you're interested in purchasing a copy of the magazine. All proceeds go to the We Fight, we Fight Foundation, so you all, I would encourage you to support that. It's so amazing. But, so on today's episode, we're going to be talking about the molecule of more. And I truly enjoyed interviewing Dr. Lieberman and Long, Michael Long, who is also my former professor at Georgetown University. So the molecule of more really talks about what drives us to want more, what makes us human, why do we do the things that we do, 
Why do we want more love? Why do we want more sex? What drives us to be creative? And I truly enjoyed talking to them and I learned a lot. So Dr. Daniel Lieberman, he's a professor and the vice chair of clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. And then Michael Long, he's trained as a physicist and he's award, he is an award-winning speechwriter, screenwriting, screenwriter and playwright. And he also teaches writing at Georgetown University. And so let's get into this interview. And I encourage you all to just let me know what you thought about this interview, because I'm sure that you will enjoy it as much as I enjoyed speaking with them. So let's get into the episode. So welcome to the Fireflies Unite podcast. Um, The mission of the podcast has really been to bring light into darkness, just like the fireflies. Um, by simply sharing the stories um, of people of color who live and thrive with the mental illness, but also to normalize the mental health conversation. Um, It was really birthed because of my experience of battling depression and anxiety and um, surviving a suicide attempt in 2016. So that's what really started the birth of the podcast. And so I thought it was, I was super excited when Mike, Uh, reached out to me and told me about the book because, well, actually I laughed at the same time because Mike was like, well, you know, the pod, he's like, I know the podcast is for people, you know, the audience is generally people of color and I'm just a a white male. And I just literally laughed when I saw the email (laughs) and I said, well, uh, but I think the topic is universal to, you know, the, the book that you both written, which is amazing. Um, The Molecule of More, How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity and Will Determine the Fate of the Human Race. So welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Yes, of course, of course. So I'm super excited. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, why do you think or did you think it was necessary to write this book? Well, you know, uh, when I was trained to be a psychiatrist, I learned a lot about the brain chemical dopamine and the role it played in a host of different mental illnesses. And one of the things that kind of gnawed away at me is that these mental illnesses seemed on the surface as if they didn't have a whole lot in common. And they included things like schizophrenia, substance abuse, bipolar disorder, um, ADHD, attention deficit disorder. And so... I started researching, trying to figure out what is the commonality among all of these things that would could be attributed to dopamine. And what I found out was so fascinating, I felt like I needed to share it with the world. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. What about you, Mike? Well, you know, uh, this book started out as as a pure labor of love. And I'm always excited as a writer to to share that is that most people who, who, uh, who, who work on a book uh, treat it as, as a real commercial enterprise. They say, we're going to write what's called a proposal, and then we're going to shop it and find out if anybody wants it, and then we'll write the book based on what the market will bear. And when Dan brought this information to me, we were both really excited about what it said about understanding why people do the things they do in a brand new way. Uh, the, the insights I can tell you, and I, and I believe I've shared these in messages with you, the insights about 
why we do the things we do, why we're motivated one way at some time in life and motivated another way at another time, really began to transform the way I, the way I looked at, at, at why I do what I do and, and how I do what I do. And so we, as a, as, a, as, as a couple of guys were just fascinated by this, decided to move forward and write this book, whether anybody was ever going to buy it or read it or not. And uh, just on the belief that other people would be as fascinated as we are, that, that there's such an interesting split in the way that we are, are motivated to do things and the way we perceive the world. So, so that's where it came from uh, in, in this way, in terms of our own motivation, is we thought it was so exciting that people would absolutely want to read it, and we were willing to take a chance to write the book long before anyone had, had said they might, uh, they might want to publish it. And sure enough, uh, we very quickly found agents and publishers and uh, I, I can say we've we've had a lot of success with the book and a lot of interest across uh, across across the world. In fact, I believe what is it, ten countries, Dan, that that we're in now. Uh, that countries? sounds that sounds about right. Yes. Yeah. So uh, so so it's it's a thrill to discover that the thing that fascinates you fascinates everybody else. Yeah. I when I actually so I read the book and I well I'm a bookworm so. And with my experience of, you know, battling mental illness, I've started to become really intrigued by like trying to figure out what's going on in my brain. And so for the um, past year, I've been diving into so many different trainings um, that are being taught by therapists and psychiatrists. And what's interesting is that dopamine drives so much. And for someone who's listening and they may not actually understand what the chemical dopamine is. So um, can you explain um, explain what it is in the, I'm pretty sure, the most simplest terms um, to help sure. people who don't understand what it is? Yeah, sure. So um, the brain is consist of, uh, consists of billions of individual cells, and we call them neurons. And they're in constant communication with one another. And one of the most important ways they uh, use to communicate is by exchanging tiny bits of chemicals called neurotransmitters. And when the neurotransmitter is passed from one brain cell to another, it sends data. It sends a message. And it may also tune different brain regions to become more active or less active. And that's how they affect our emotions. Now, dopamine in some ways is a very special brain chemical. It's the brain chemical that the brain uses to process information about things that we do not have but either want or need. And that's why we call the book The Molecule of More. Dopamine is what makes you desire. It makes you desire to make the world a better place. It gives you energy, excitement, and enthusiasm. And all of these things sound absolutely wonderful, and they certainly are. But it's also important to remember that there is a dark side about constantly pursuing more. And that is that when we get something that we want, it it switches brain circuits. It's no longer something that's going to stimulate dopamine because it's no longer something that we don't have. Once it becomes ours, dopamine shuts off and we need to activate different brain chemicals in order to enjoy and appreciate what we have. And people don't always do that. Um, we see the phenomenon of buyer's remorse. 
we're all excited about something right up until the time you get it. Or when you're looking forward to spending time with a friend and then your mind is elsewhere as you're holding a conversation with that friend. So dopamine is exciting. It is thrilling. But we need to keep a balance in our life between the things that we want and the things that we have. Yeah, I so when I was thinking about dopamine, what what really came to mind for me is is correct me if I'm wrong. Is dopamine one of the chemicals that is released when you work out? I know serotonin is, but is dopamine a part of that? Um, you know, I think that we would probably focus more on, um, I'm sorry, um, endorphin. Um, that's okay. what leads to the runner's high. And, and if you think about it, the way you feel after you work out is kind of a calm satisfaction. It's very easy to be in the present, to be in your body, which is tingling pleasantly. And that wouldn't be dopamine. Dopamine is the opposite of satisfaction. It's needing more. It, it, it's being motivated to go out there and fight. So endorphin and serotonin are examples of chemicals that are more directed towards enjoying the present moment. Yeah, that 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 makes complete that makes complete sense. And I think when you when you're talking about dopamine, I, I remember in the book you used the example about how a person, I believe, like they can be walking past a particular like coffee shop in the area, and <laughs> dopamine is the one to like say like send the message to your brain like you know you are going to I think try this particular bagel or um, particular coffee. And you go into the to the coffee shop and you go, you notice every like just say every single day when you're walking past it. But over time, the bagel or the pastry, whatever it is that you're trying, it doesn't um, have the same effect or like it does it not taste as good. Can you like kind of break that down and how that uh, works with dopamine? Sure. So um, a key detail uh, is that the coffee shop in the book is a coffee shop that's new. It's one you've never been to before. And that's what excites dopamine is uh, things that are new. So you see the coffee shop and you can imagine what it's like to see a new bakery or a new restaurant on your street. You get a lot of excitement and anticipation. So in our story in the book, the character goes in, uh, orders coffee, a croissant, and it's just absolutely delicious. And his excitement builds. And he said, this is going to lead to a better life for me because I'm going to have breakfast here every morning and have the best coffee and croissant in the city. And we often think that way. We often think our life is going to change for the better and it's never going to be the same again. But what happens is that the new turns into the familiar. And when that happens, dopamine shuts down and we lose that feeling of excitement and anticipation. So the guy's in the coffee shop, he's drinking his coffee, he's chewing his croissant and all the excitement is gone. His mind is elsewhere, maybe thinking about what's the next new thing. And so the pleasures of dopamine are fleeting. They're not meant to last. They're meant to get us excited, motivated, and energized. And then as soon as we accomplish our goal, it's on to the next thing. This really is a, a, a key idea. And, and there's a little phrase I, I want to use that, uh, that, that we often use when we talk about this. It's, it's the difference between anticipation and appreciation. There, there are there are two ways that we that we enjoy the world, and a good example of of, of how this works in in action in practice is is Christmas. 
you, you, you look forward to Christmas. You're so excited about Christmas. Uh, and uh, a kid is, is that's all he lives for. You know, oh, I'm going to get to open presents. But as soon as the kid opens those presents, those, those heart's desire presents, 15, 20 minutes later, what's the kid doing? The kid's playing with the boxes. The, the most intense kind of pleasure that we have is the anticipation that something might be wonderful. And it's just like, oh, this this uh, this new uh, coffee and croissant place. This may be a great place to have breakfast. But as soon as you get in physical contact with something, then uh, the, the 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 mystery of it begins to shut down because now the questions are answered. You know uh, what what reality is as opposed to the possibilities. And that pleasure for for many people is not as as intense as the anticipation. So we spend our lives uh, alternately hoping and wishing and anticipating the next great thing and thinking how it might be a wonderful, life-changing event. And we spend the rest of our lives appreciating the thing in the moment. And appreciation isn't typically as intense, and it takes a little bit more work to do because of that. So, so it's a great way to kind of uh, understand why so many things that seem to be the answer to our hopes and prayers turn out not to be that at all. It's it's not in the things, it's in us. You know, Mike, I remember when you pointed out that line from the children's book, Winnie the Pooh. Somebody asks Winnie the Pooh, what's the best moment in life? And not surprisingly, he says, eating honey. But at the same time, he's thinking there is a moment right before you start eating that's even better, but he didn't know whether or not it had a name. And that's dopamine. (laughs) Oh, it's it's such a good example. That is such a good example. And and if you if you just pay attention to when people when people talk, uh, you'll find you'll find this all over the place. I was reading just this morning, and I've seen this quote so many times. And and uh, it's from the from the writer E. B. White. And and he said uh, he said words to the effect of every morning I, I get up I'm torn between uh, the possibility that I might save the world or the pleasure of uh, actually being comfortable right here working on whatever I'm doing, and and that is just such a perfect example is oh my goodness I, I there could be something great out there today, but but this in front of me is is pretty good too. You know. I'm I'm just amazed at just how the brain works because it made me think about when we think of all of that, you know, the example of Winnie the Pooh, when we think about the, you know, the, the coffee shop example, my mind immediately started going to how it translates to so many other things as far as like if when people struggle with, let's say, for example, um, addiction. So that can be drug use, alcohol gambling um or like a shopping addiction so and is if is it the case where by the time the addiction has occurred is it that like dopamine that particular chemical is like it shuts down is that how it works well you know um Drugs of abuse um, create this compulsive pattern of use because they stimulate the dopamine circuits in the brain more powerfully than um, natural behaviors. So it's important to remember that these dopamine circuits came about by evolution, and they're designed to essentially keep us alive and keep us reproducing. So 
evolution is not always working for the happiness of the individual. And the dopamine circuits are constantly keeping us on the run, saying, pursue this, pursue that, more safety, more food, more reproductive partners. And that determines our behavior to a very large degree. Now, what happens with drugs is drugs are like a guided missile that go right to the dopamine centers of our brain and hit it with a chemical blast. That's stronger, as I mentioned, the natural behaviors. And what the brain does is it says, well, it's a bigger dopamine stimulus. Therefore, it must be more important to my survival. And that's why drug addicts will give up their jobs, their families, their homes, their health, in order to continue taking drugs. And from the outside, that seems completely irrational. They appear as if they're destroying their lives and getting really nothing in return. But from the inside, with their brain rating the importance of behaviors by how much dopamine it releases, using drugs makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think it's it's the same thing for any form of addiction, right? So that could be alcohol too, or gambling or shopping, anything uh, that kind of disrupts your daily activity. Yeah. You know, we understand the chemical addictions pretty well, and that, that does include alcohol. Um, the behavioral addictions like shopping and gambling, uh, and more recently, um, online social media use, we don't understand them quite as well. But data is coming in more and more showing that these do seem to be very similar to the chemical addictions and can probably take over and destroy a person's life in pretty much the same way. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought up social media because I wanted to talk about that for a moment because majority of the audience who listen to the podcast, they're all millennials, so they're all my peers and, you know, we live on social media and even the generation beneath us, I, I, I think, are they generation Y or Z? I can't quite remember. But like, I know my siblings, they, I thought I was bad on social media. Like I can take, I can take moments off of social media and go read a book. Like, I don't feel like it controls my life, but in terms of like, you know, when people are seemingly becoming addicted to social media like is it is it tied to like is it the the validation from like the likes and the followers and the comments or like but some you know some people I don't know if they actually realize that they have an addiction to social media so can you talk about that and what you know or what's coming out as it relates to dopamine yeah, so social media is in some ways like a drug. Usually a dopamine hit requires um, a certain amount of effort. It comes in response to accomplishment. Uh, you get that dopamine hit just as you're about to reach your goal. Drugs, on the other hand, are like pressing a button on an elevator. I want to feel good, press the button, take the drug, bang, dopamine hit. Social media is similar. Um, you know, anytime somebody likes a post that you put up, that puts a little dopamine hit. Anytime you read a little piece of gossip or information about your friends or even the news, that gives you a little bit of a dopamine hit. And so what can happen is that people just become accustomed to these little surges of dopamine. It gets to the point where they need them to get through their day 
And the brain gradually shifts and modifies itself to orient more towards sources of dopamine. So the more they use social media, the more dependent upon it they become, and the more likely it is that their brain is going to say, hey, why don't you stop what you're doing and go over to social media and get a little bit of that dopamine hit? Yeah, I think in terms of social media, too, one of the things that I often talk about is I I talk about how I remember at one point, I I don't know, maybe four years ago, and I used to live on social media all the time. One, because it it was an escape from not having to deal with my current reality. So it was like a way to get lost in Mm -hmm. this digital world. Um, And then also like, you know, it was also a way to, um, when you're dealing with insecurities um, and the need to have validation from other people, that also, you know, helps a person to to feel good. Because if like, I'm not feeling good about myself, let me put something on social media and get some validation by other people's comments or likes or whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. The problem, though, is that it's never enough. And so you put something on social media, you get a bunch of likes, and how long does it feel good for? Um, Probably not all day, maybe not even an hour. So you put it up, you get some likes, and then it fades. And you kind of feel like, okay, I need to do it again and again and again. And that's the problem. It's not an enduring satisfaction. Now, If you were to get together in person with some friends who cared about you, that would not be dopamine. That would be a here and now phenomenon. And I think that many people's experience is that that leads to a much more enduring relief of pain and suffering. That if somebody spends actual physical time with you, that might make you feel better um, all day long, maybe even more than a day. And so I think the thing to remember about social media is that it's not enduring and it is going to give you this gnawing appetite for more. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really great point. And one of the things, too, is switching gears a bit to talk about. It's interesting. One of the one of my favorite parts in the book was the um, the chapter that was about love. And you talk about why, like the honeymoon phase, like it just. It doesn't last. And so without giving too much away, because people listening, they have to get the book because it's amazing. But if, if, <laughs> either, one, yes, <laughs> <laughs> so if either one of you can just explain, you know, just like why, you know, why that is. Why is it that the honeymoon phase um, doesn't last? And, and, and it made me really just start like thinking, thinking about it when I was reading it. And like at the, you know, I thought about like, times when I've dated someone and how my mind, I thought like, oh, maybe it's just a a thing that women do. I didn't know like, okay, this is actually what more people do. But like, I would think like before when I was starting to date someone, I literally start like planning out like a future in my head with this person. And when I read the chapter, I was like, oh, this is why this is all tied to dopamine. So can you talk about that? Mike, do you want to get that? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. I will. Uh, you know, for, first thing I think uh, as a, as a basic to understand it is that you're 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 right to suspect maybe it's not just a female or male thing. After all, it's a dopamine thing, and it applies to both of us. So so it so it's certainly not some sort of uh, limit that, that that you're stuck with because of uh, because of your your gender. Uh, 
and, and the other the other foundational idea is that is that this this is born out of a uh, an evolutionary need. Remember that uh, the things that our bodies and our minds do uh, happen for a reason. And and uh, you you think about our our claim that uh, dopamine or the truth that dopamine causes us to pursue new things. Well, why would that be? Why would the body constantly need new things? Well, if you think about how the world works, it's pretty easy. What do you need to survive? Well, you need you need shelter. You need uh, to propagate the species. So you need uh, another another partner. Uh, you need you need something to eat. None of those things can be found in the immediate vicinity. You know, you can't reach out your arm and, oh, there happens to be some food right there. You have to go seek these things out. And by definition, those things you have to seek out are going to be new. So, so dopamine is the thing that makes you curious for new things. And as soon as you've investigated that new thing and figured out whether it can provide for you, you know, food or, or, or another partner or, or shelter or some other thing that, that you need, well, of course, you, you wouldn't as be as interested in it naturally because there's, there's nothing left to investigate. You've already exploited it for the things that you need to survive. So far, so good, right, Kia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So, so far, so good. So now we come to love. And we're in a we're in a, a bar or a restaurant or a church or wherever we are, and we see someone across the room, and we think, "Wow, that that's a, that, she's she's really attractive." There's something about her. I heard her laugh, and I like her laugh. There's something from that distance that makes us peek up, get a little attention, and then your mind starts to race. Oh my goodness, this. This could be the one. I could have a wonderful time with this person. This may be one. And like you said, now you're planning your life. There goes Kia planning her life. And, and, uh, and it's a wonderful feeling because by knowing, ironically, by knowing nothing at all about this person, you can imagine everything to be perfect. And so you get this wonderful, intense possibility and you go across the room and you meet them and you talk and you, you know, you have a cup of coffee and you go on some dates and you begin to get to know them. And, 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 uh, the more that mystery remains as that mystery remains at the beginning, it's like, oh my goodness, this really could be the person. But then, then the mystery begins to fade because you're actually with them. You're experiencing them and appreciating them, not just anticipating them. And the pleasure we get from that isn't as intense as that, is that dopamine promise, that dopamine buzz, that, oh, anything is possible. So the, the immediate pleasure of, of, of love is romance and possibility and the unknown. And as all the colors are filled in, as all the blanks get erased, that mystery goes away, and it becomes the appreciation of being with them, which takes effort, anticipation, hope comes naturally. Appreciation means you have to work at it. And uh, we don't like to work so much. I don't know about you, but I'm, that's not my favorite thing to do. That takes more energy. And so naturally, love begins to fade out of the romance. And you have to be choosing at this point to enjoy their company. And unless you make that conscious choice, you're going to get the wandering eye that has to be answered. And that's why love begins to fade. To go back to the core idea, the body's always trying to guide us to something new, a little bit more resources, maximizing resources for the future, and that includes propagating the species.
That's why love fades. One thing to keep in mind is that love doesn't necessarily need to fade. Another option is that it can transform. Dopaminergic yeah, love. Yeah, it is, is someone's referred to as passionate love. And because it is driven by dopamine, it is about possibility. It's about the future. It's about things that you do not yet fully possess. That really only lasts about one year. And at that point, love is either going to fade or it's going to transform. And what it's able to transform into is from passionate love to something called companionate love. And that's when your partner becomes more of a companion, more of a friend. And it is not as blissfully exciting as the passionate phase, but at the same time, it can actually be more satisfying because it's something that you feel very secure about. A uh, love researcher once described it as the deep satisfaction of having another person's life entwined with your own. So I, I think that we tend to define love strictly as the passionate phase. And when passion goes away, we, we often say, oh my gosh, what happened to this relationship? Maybe it's time to find somebody new. But in order to make love last a lifetime, we've also got to give attention to the companionate phase of love because that's the one that's going to last. And, and that, is so, that is so vital to understand. And I think it's, I think it's the key to... Uh, frankly, curing a lot of heartache in the world. And, and the, for me, for me, and maybe for other people too, the key word here is choice. This is a choice you make to go across that bridge from the romantic love to the companionate love and the appreciation. It's not going to just happen in most cases. You have to say, I have to make an effort to involve myself, as Dan put it, to intertwine my life with that person's life. It's not simply going to be pulling me along with the possibilities like like the dopaminergic romance does so so uh, you know we say oh it's so hard to find someone so hard to, to to make a relationship work i believe that for many of us that difficulty comes from a, a failure to recognize the effort it takes to intertwine our lives with someone else and to, to take our pleasure in a relationship from something other than this thrilling possibility uh, you, all of us, all of us know people who bounce from relationship to relationship. They're with somebody for a few months or a few dates, maybe even as, as them pointed out a year, which is a key number here. Maybe they're with them for a while and pretty soon they're with someone else and then they're with someone else. And if you look at it from this dopaminergic point of view or this point of view of, of the role of dopamine, you see that they're bouncing from thrill to thrill to thrill, from exciting relationship to exciting relationship unwilling or unable or unaware of the possibility of a different kind of excitement, which is the joining of a life with another. Yeah. I, when you were speaking, I, I literally was thinking about someone, you know, that I grew up with, how I was always wondering, I'm like, this person is never single. Like every time they're always jumping from one person to the next, not realizing like, oh, they're, they're getting bored. Um, with this particular person. So it's kind of like, to me, what, what I think about is if if those relationships actually even ha get to the point of really having substance, because if they're going from thrill to thrill, it's just kind of like, oh, I'm just doing what works right now, what um, I'm having fun right now, I'm enjoying this person um, right now, but not actually maybe thinking in terms of like 
something that could be potentially long term. Is that what is that true? Yeah, as Mike pointed out, the transition from passionate love to companionate love is very difficult. And it's harder for some people than others. If people are very dopamine focused, if they're very interested in things that are new, things that are exciting, it's going to be a tougher transition compared to someone who is uh, more fond of having things the same. They like their old familiar t-shirt. They don't like a whole lot of change. For them, that transition is going to be easier. But um, psychiatrists and psychotherapists um, we're always seeing people who have this difficulty of making the transition. I had a patient who had dated over a hundred women and he was getting absolutely sick of it. And he really, really wanted to settle down. But he was having this problem of every time he got to know these women on an intimate level, he lost interest in them. And so one day out of desperation, a week after meeting a new woman, he persuaded her to go with him to Las Vegas and just get married, thinking this is going to solve the problem. And um, not surprisingly, it did not. And, and I want to add to that, and I'm, I'm actually going to put on Dan's hat, if I may, for just a moment and say, if, if you're hearing this now and you think, oh, my goodness, that's, that's me, that's what's going on. Understand that in no way does this make you unusual or bad or, or, or any kind of anything negative. It makes you human. We all share this. The difference between those who are successful in, in this pursuit of love and those who are not is, is sometimes just the sheer luck of, of, of the attraction. But, but it's, it's, it doesn't matter how they got there. What matters is how you can get there. And you can get there by beginning to be aware of it and to make a choice. This is, this, is, uh, this is one of the things that makes us human is that we're fallible and susceptible to, to, this, uh, to this romantic dopaminergic urge. But if we want more, we, we can almost always have more if we recognize how to get it. And this is how to get it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I think it's important for just anyone listening, they, you know, to, it also helps them to understand like, why I'm doing the things that I'm doing. And it's one that ties into being just more self-aware because sometimes people are doing things and they don't even realize they're doing it just because it's, it's the norm. It's what they've been doing for so long. And by having this conversation, it just opens the door to say like, wow, maybe that's, that's why I, I, I'm constantly entering new relationships or maybe, um, you know, that's what ties into my um, my struggles with addiction. And I also think just like in terms of another thing that you mentioned in the book, too, if you can just briefly um, talk about as far as like those are who, you know, because now we're in this era where there are so many creatives, you know, because of the way that technology is just moving and we have really have the power to create so so many things that we weren't able to or it would have been harder to do it before so when you think of in terms like people becoming social media influencers and they're partnering with brands or you know like myself starting a podcast or you know so many people that are entering you know being becoming um, entrepreneurs and just those you know as far as creativity goes how does dopamine um, you know, impact that? Like, what's the relation between creativity and, and dopamine? Because that's also something that you talk about in the book as well. 
So the, the primary role of dopamine is to maximize future resources. And that's why it gives us the excitement, the ambition, and the motivation to go out to pursue things that are around us. But pursuing things we can see and we know are there is only one way to maximize future resources. An even more exciting way is to create something that never existed before. And that's the creative role of dopamine. And, you know, essentially what creativity is, is making connections between things that previously seemed unconnected. So, for example, you knew all about podcasts and you knew about the struggles you were having. And then one day, bam, you made the connection. The struggles I'm having would make a fantastic podcast. And we can't, we can't necessarily directly make those things happen. Creative thoughts usually just bubble up from underneath our consciousness and just hit us out of the blue. But there are things we can do that make that more likely. We can juice up the dopamine system by surrounding it with all kinds of things that are new. And so sometimes people find that when they go on vacation and they're in an unfamiliar environment, they may come back more creative or they may have brand new ideas they never had before in this foreign, perhaps somewhat alien environment. And so by exposing ourselves to lots and lots of different things, we enable ourselves to make connections that we uh, never made before. And by exposing us to unfamiliar things, we kind of rev up that dopamine system and make the connections more likely to occur. Wow. I want to jump in here and, and, and say one, one thing about creativity, if I can, because this phrase that Dan used right off the bat about, about it's associating things that don't normally get associated, it's easy to skip over that, but it's a mm -hmm. really great working definition of creativity. I'm sitting here in front of my Apple computer, okay? Do you have an Apple computer? Uh, do either of you have an Apple computer? I wish it, I had it, an Apple computer. No, we're normal people, <laughs> uh, Mike. You're normal people. <laughs> okay, well, now, now, that I've, now that I've been painted in a corner, but anyway, <laughs> I, I have an Apple computer here. It's a, it's a beautiful machine. You've seen these, these beautiful Apple computers. Well, we all take that for granted, but here's the great creative idea, one of many, great creative ideas that Steve Jobs had when he created Apple Computer. Up until, you know, up until Steve Jobs came along, you know what computers were? They were business machines like typewriters. They were big, ugly things that sat in boxes off in some other room somewhere. And it just like, uh, you know, like parts of a car, you wouldn't think anything about whether they should be pretty or not. You just said, well, that's a thing that runs the car. And that's the way computers were. And Steve Jobs associated the beautiful things he had studied. He had studied things like calligraphy and art, and he was very interested in how things look and the beauty of them. And he said, and this was his big original idea, what if we made computers pretty things? What if we made them uh, a beautiful integrated part of somebody's day, whether they were in an office or at home? Now that seems so obvious to us today here in 2019, but in 1971, 72, that was a crazy idea. That was like having a pretty, a pretty car engine. Who would think of such a thing? And yet it was transformative. And it happened because here was a guy who associated things that had not been associated. In this case, beauty and business machines. 
And one of the reasons that happens to him and other people is that they are highly dopaminergic. They're open to many different experiences and thoughts and ideas. So there's a lot already bouncing around in their heads, and they bounce off of one another. Here's a guy who is interested both in business machines and beauty. So naturally, he's going to combine those things into something interesting. When you see a movie that you think, oh, that's an original idea, like, like uh, like zombie movies are out there now. Everybody sees the zombie movies. But, oh, here's a zombie movie that takes place in the Old West. You see, it's an unusual connection, something like that. So creativity is just connecting things that ordinarily are not connected that most folks wouldn't think to connect. And it's a way to drive your own connection or your own creativity. Look for those opportunities to uh, to join things that aren't normally joined. And a way to rev that engine is to surround yourself with new experiences, to be open to things that you haven't experienced before. Because now you have this big toy box in your head of random experiences that might be combined in brand new ways. I'm just very enthusiastic about the possibility of increasing your own creativity simply by leveraging what we know about how dopamine creates creativity. Wow. So I just got super excited listening to both both of you because you it made me think about all that I'm currently working on. So I remember at one point after I had this experience of, you know, being forced into the psychiatric unit and like, you know, a year before that I was just finishing my graduate program. And I, I remember saying to, at, at one point when I got out of the hospital saying like, oh, my gosh, I feel like a failure. Um, because did I, um, at one point I was like, I don't know if I want to do this whole like PR communications things, but I was working, um, at a television network. And so I was doing uh, production at one point and I was doing, um, PR at another point. And so I remember telling my therapist, like, you know, I really enjoy the skills, you know, I, I enjoy the writing. I enjoy putting events together. These are all the things that I enjoy that I was doing in uh, entertainment aspect. I was like, but I don't think I want to do that anymore. And I was like, I'm really struggling, struggling to figure out how can I use those skills to propel um, the um, the mental health conversation or to raise awareness and really try to move the needle. Hence came the podcast and also um, the book that I'm working on. And, and I remember telling my therapist, you know, I want to be, I was <laughs> told her, I said, you know, I want to be the Oprah of mental health. And she said, well, what does that mean? I said, well, you know, I have this communications background and my goal is to, I want to create this mental health media and communications company. And she says, so what does that look like? And I said, well, I'm still figuring that out. But here it was, all these dots starting to connect. And I was like, that's the podcast. That's me speaking. I just in uh, the year alone, I've had like over 40 speaking engagements. I've been writing articles. Um, I just recently finished my book and um, I'm like creating all these programs and, you know, these events. And I'm and she's like, wow, that's amazing. No one has done that. And I was just like, yeah, you know, a digital magazine and a documentary and where all these things are just like coming up in my head. And then she's like, yeah, no one has ever, you know, done anything like that. And so these are the things that I'm currently working on. And so when you guys are talking, my I'm just literally smiling from ear to ear. And I'm like, this all is starting to make sense to me now. <laughs> and I think as, as you've experienced, creativity feeds on itself. 
the more you create, the more creative you become because you are orienting yourself to new things, new possibilities. Uh, and I think it's just fantastic what you're doing. So good to get this message out. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, one of the things, uh, one of the last things that I also just wanted to ask you both is, so just in, in terms of dopamine, it, it, for some of us, it um, it makes it hard for us to control our desires and the things that we want, or sometimes maybe not even thinking before we're acting. So like, I don't know what are like practical steps or like that people can do to kind of like gain some sort of control. And what comes to mind to me is of course becoming self-aware, but I would all also recommend therapy as well. But I just wanted to know in terms of, you know, creating this amazing book, like, what do you think in terms like, what can people do? Um, I don't know if to gain like some sort of self-control as it relates to like dopamine. I think if their behaviors are having a significantly negative impact on their life, then you're absolutely right. It's time for some psychotherapy um, because it, it, it's now starting to become a medical problem. But, you know, if it's just kind of annoying, somebody feels like their dopamine's a bit out of control, but it's not at the point where they really need psychotherapy. I think what they need to recognize is that in our modern world, our dopamine circuits are constantly being stimulated. We're always being told, get something new, get something better. Your life is not good enough as it is. And so it creates this imbalance in our mind. It's almost like going to the gym and only working out the right side of your body. That's not a good way to have a healthy life. And so I think that we need to make efforts to intentionally strengthen the circuits that deal with appreciating what we have right now. And, you know, that's really called mindfulness. It's paying attention to the present moment, focusing on your sensory experiences, what you're seeing, hearing, feeling the ground under your feet, feeling the clothes on your body. And by taking moments throughout the day to focus on the present, you're going to re return a kind of balance to your brain. You're not just going to be working out the right side of your body anymore. You're going to be working on both sides. And it's going to make it easier for you to live the kind of life you want. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. Mike, is there anything um, that you want to add to that? No, I, there's, there's, he, he just summed it up so perfectly. It really is about self-awareness and about steps you can take, activities you can engage in that, that bring about self-awareness. Self and, and the simple mindfulness exercises that only take a few minutes out of your day, such a great place to start. And, and if, you, if you bridle even at that, any kind of formality. Uh, one thing you can do that's, that's easy is when you're having a conversation with somebody, uh, remember that you're in a conversation and tell yourself to do this. I'm going to listen to what they said, and after they've finished talking, then I'll think about what I'm going to say in reply. Instead of, as you listen, processing it about, well, what's, what's my opinion? What am I going to think? It's a little simple thing you can do starting today, right now. Just be present in the conversation by listening instead of reacting. It's, it's a wonderful feeling uh, to, to enjoy things as they happen, and that's a place to begin. Yes. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. Like I truly enjoyed just soaking all of this up. And I know that the listeners will as well, because I think it's one, it's one of the, to me, 
what I have learned is one of the best things that I could have done for myself outside of, of course, (laughs) taking my medication as prescribed and going to therapy. But it's like this process of becoming extremely self-aware, because now that I'm self-aware and I understand things about myself, it allows me to uh, think before, like you said, um, before reacting um, to be proactive versus reactive. And I think it's a conversation that uh, more people need to have, um, whether they deal with the mental illness or not. We all have, you know, things that we're constantly trying to work on, goals that we um, that we want to make happen, dreams that we have. And so this conversation is, as you know, the molecule of more and dopamine is truly just, I think is amazing. And I can't wait to see more people, you know, be impacted by it and more conversations being had. And so before you wonderful gentlemen go, can you share if you are on social media, your social media handles or your websites um, and how people can connect with you um, and where they can find the book? You can find uh, the the book's website at moleculeofmore.com. And again, the title of the book is The Molecule of More. It's available at Amazon. It's available anywhere books are sold. You get it at Barnes & Noble today, right now, and walk in. Uh, on social media, uh, we're on Twitter at Molecule of More, and we're also on Facebook at Molecule of More, and then we have personal websites as well. Yes, and I, I'll be sure to include uh, your personal websites as well as the um, social media handles for the book as well as the website for the book in the show notes so that those who are interested in finding more, they can refer back to it. But again, just thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to just have this very important and needed conversation. It was really fun because it was it was it was not as deep as some of the conversations that I usually have. So it was like a sense of fresh air for me because <laughs> sometimes, you know, mental health and mental illness can get really, really dark. Um, but I think it's important to have balance. And so uh, your interview really did provide the, the, you know, just my, the show with that. So thank you so much. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. So that wraps up another episode of the Fireflies Unite podcast. Thank you all for listening. You have a blessed week and I'll talk to you next week. I hope that you obtain tools and resources from the Fireflies Unite podcast to help you manage your mental health, but please do not use it as a substitute for a relationship with a licensed therapist or psychiatrist. Let's continue the conversation by following me on Fireflies Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.